Welcome to Connecting the Docs, a podcast from the State Archives of North Carolina, where archivists connect archival materials to fascinating and true stories from the past. The theme of season two is Unprocessed, where each week we deliver rare and often overlooked topics related to North Carolina's storied history. Now here's your host, John Horan. Hi, welcome to another episode of Connecting the Docks. Today we're going to explore dams, reservoirs, and towns underwater. I'm your host, John Horan, and I'm here with my interns again, uh, Madison Riley, if you could say hi. Hello. And Michelle Witt. Hi. And as I said, we're going to tell two stories about towns that were dammed in the 20th century. What do we mean by that? That means that these towns are underwater because of the implementation and creation of dams and man-made lakes. One story takes place in western North Carolina near our western regional branch of the archives, and the other is somewhat closer to home, home being Raleigh, here at the State Archives of North Carolina in neighboring Chatham County. I think for the first story, we're going to have Madison tell us about that dam. So for the first story, we're going to process, it's, it's about the Fontana Dam that's located in Graham and Swain County in western North Carolina, close to the border of Tennessee. Fontana Dam and Lake were built during World War II in the 1940s to provide hydroelectric power for the war effort. Towns and families were evacuated so that the government could purchase the land to create the dam and lake. Along with the houses and the stores went the schools and the churches, even the one road that led into the area, Highway 288. Thousands of people and generations were uprooted and sent packing with no way to return to their familial burial grounds. Japan, Bushnell, Forney, Dorsey, Nolan, Almond, Judson, and Proctor, North Carolina. These are all the towns that were inundated by the Tennessee Valley Authority in the 1940s to create the dam. The towns I just mentioned are the majority of the ones that we know of, but there could be more that we don't know about. Those towns are mainly in Swain County, but it does cross over into Graham County. That's really fascinating. So what, what happened to the people that were living in these towns? It was difficult to discover all the towns that were evacuated and flooded, since not all the towns were on maps and they weren't all documented. But just from a quick search, it was easy to determine that at least Judson and Proctor were under Lake Fontana. So from there, I searched in the digital archives and discovered an article from October 25th, 1944, titled, Moving Deadline Near for Fontana Reservoir Residents, 1,200 Families Have Departed for a New Home. This is from the newspaper, The Silver Herald in Rural Ite, which was contributed by Jackson County Public Library. This article mentions that there are five villages involved, Japan, Bushnell, Almond, Judson, and Proctor. It goes on to state that apparently nearly all the families went along with what was happening, and that was according to the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority. They believed that the families wanted the new advantages that came along with moving. The final date for vacating was November 1st, 1944. There were approximately 1,319 families in the entire area at the time of which 599 who were known as the original families or long-term residents, while 720 were transient families or those of which who had decided to settle and seek employment into the project. Many people from the area were farmers and mill workers, so when they moved, they went to places where farming conditions and methods were different and they needed to learn how to adapt. The article mentions that it was considered important that these families have some follow-up assistance if they were to make a success in their new relocations. 
So it made me wonder what actually happened and how successful were the lives of the folks who were forced to move. And if they even got the assistance they were promised when the government couldn't even follow through on the promise of a new road. But I'll get to that later. If you look at maps of Swain County on North Carolina Maps, which is a comprehensive digital collection from the State Archives Repository, there are several maps that appear. If you observe the one that is titled North Carolina County Road Survey of Graham County from 1930, it shows Japan, North Carolina. In my research, I found that locals apparently called it J-Pan, but it's spelled like the country. If you then observe the Graham County State Highway and Public Works Commission map from 1952, after the implementation of the dam, Japan, North Carolina is no longer there. Currently on the map, there is no Japan, North Carolina. Both of these maps can be found in the physical form at the State Archives. There is a limited amount of information known of the town of Japan, but it appears it was established in 1908 as a supply center for surrounding lumber camps. During my research, I found a small subheading from the Wallace Enterprise newspaper in Wallace, North Carolina, titled, There'll Be No Japan. This is from December 31st, 1942, and is located on the digital NC platform. It reads, when the Tennessee Valley Authority completes its giant Fontana Dam in 1944, there won't be any Japan. That is Japan, North Carolina. The unincorporated town will be 50 feet beneath the waters of Fontana Reservoir. And that's exactly what happened. They said, you know, that's exactly what happened here. But what does that actually mean? Does it mean like that they just flooded this town or did they try to take it apart? Or how did they deal with sort of the physical matter of the people. I mean, they tried to relocate people, I guess, but what happened to the physical stuff that they left behind, their homes? I mean, some things you could pack, but not everything. So I also found within the State Archive, there were photos of what it described as the destruction of Japan, North Carolina, and it specifically depicts what is captioned as Miss Callie Pilkington home. So we can assume it's her home, so the images were taken in, in 1944 by John Helmer, and it's from the Department of Conservation and Development Travel Information Division Photograph Collection. The entire collection is digitalized on Flickr. There are 14 images in total. A few of the photographs are of two young children, I would guess maybe around five to seven years old. They're holding a cute Jack Russell Terrier dog, and they're looking at a wooden house or cabin with the words Japan, North Carolina, Britain, in white on the door. There are also other images of the landscape looking out at the surrounding area. The children are also featured in those images, and there are also photos of an older woman. She's sitting in a chair next to the two children and two dogs, and in case you're wondering, the second dog appears to be a beagle. These images are priceless since they depict an area that is it no longer exists and is now under Fontana Lake. So I have no idea where those children are today, and if you're out there, please let us know. Yeah, come find us. <laughs> so the project was in the rural country in the Great Smoky Mountains. So the Tennessee Valley Authority had to create a small new village housing some 5,000 people in nearly 400 houses and 400 trailers. They worked around the clock in three shifts. The village featured a 50-bed hospital, a business district, two racially segregated schools, libraries, softball fields, recreation buildings, refreshment stands, and movie theaters. And about one third of the workers were from the towns that were evacuated. So the project did create jobs, but at the same time, it also forced people to find a new place to call home. 
Yeah, and those are short-term jobs, right? Once is once the dam's built, they're they're looking for something new, and and that town is is uprooted again, so they have to move a second time. Uh, but you know, the people who had to move the first time from these towns that were flooded, and then the, again a second time, where did they end up? You know, some ended up moving to Asheville and surrounding areas, but we don't know exact details of where they moved. We can assume that they moved somewhere that fit their career path, which at the time was mainly farming and working in mills. Some of them were able to purchase new farmland with the money that they had got from selling the land to the government, but a good bit of them stayed and worked on the project, and the place, the village that the Tennessee Valley created became an actual town, and it's still there today. It's actually a resort. And as I mentioned very briefly in passing, the implementation of Fontana Dam also led to the flooding of Highway 288 that connected the townspeople to more rural parts of the area. In return for the flooding of the highway, the government promised a new road that led to the parts that weren't flooded so the family could have access to the family cemeteries. Due to expensive environmental issues that were found during construction, they only built six miles of the new road that led up to a tunnel. It is also known as the Road to Nowhere and is a tour site today. There is a road sign that states, Welcome to the Road to Nowhere, a broken promise, 1943 to question mark. More than 30 years had passed before they even decided to end the project. In February 2010, the U.S. Department of Interior signed a settlement agreement to pay Swain County $52 million in lieu of building the road. In 2018, the payment was complete. Is there more to the story, though? I, you know, is it just that they built this dam and they flooded a bunch of towns and then they, you know, failed to finish the highway and all that sort of thing? Or, or did they come back? That's a great question. And there is an entire collection on the Upper French Broad Defense Association in the Western Regional Archive in Asheville. This collection is about the potential expansion of the Fontana Dam that was proposed in 1961, almost 20 years after that project had been finished. The expansion was never done due to the activism that led to the end of the project in 1972. There was never an expansion made. They kept the TVA from putting a series of 14 dams along the French Broad River. There are photographs, notes, and flyers, and so much more in the collection. It's really interesting because it, thousands of people use it, use Fontana Lake for recreational purposes. They ride their boats, their kayaks, and how many of them realize that people's homes and, and their livelihoods are underneath when they're having fun on top? Um, but it's not the only recreational spot in the state that used to be someone's home. I think Jordan Lake may be another one. That's right, John. So I did some research on Jordan Lake to see what similarities it might have in common with Fontana Lake, and I encountered some interesting information. Jordan Lake, as we know it today, is a recreation spot. We cross it on US 64 and see people out on boats and on the beaches. But what many people may not know is that it's a man-made lake and it really covers a wide area of Chatham County. And it was created as a solution for flooding of farmland. There were communities that were affected by the flooding and by the creation of the lake. Some of these communities exist today, such as Mary Oaks and Farrington, but there are some others that simply don't. These are communities that are 
below the surface of the water and they had names like Seaforth, Lockville, and Pea Ridge. The area that is now Jordan Lake has always been known as an area where there was a lot of flooding, but the flooding was particularly bad in 1945. And it was around that time that talk began of creating a dam so that the flooding could be captured intentionally in a new man-made lake. There were two obstacles to making it happen, and one was public sentiment and the other was funding. I found evidence in the state archives that there were hearings dedicated to the topic of creating a dam and a lake, and farmers were opposed. Naturally, it was their livelihood that was in question here. But over time, apparently, the idea garnered enough support to move forward. And when it came to funding, a lawmaker named B. Everett Jordan is the one who succeeded in securing the money from the federal government that was needed to build the dam, and construction started in 1967. As a result, people and entire communities were moved out of the way. It took time. Jordan Lake was completed in 1982. There are said to be cemeteries, houses, Native American tribal ruins, and more underneath the lake. And allegedly, when water levels are low, you can see headstones sticking out of the water. So next time you're driving on US 64 or North Carolina 751 and you're looking at some old houses, think of what might have been there or might be currently underwater. For something people use all the time, was it hard to find information about it? That's a really good question, John. The short answer is that it was actually quite difficult to find information about this period in North Carolina's history, particular to Chatham County and Jordan Lake. For starters, it wasn't always called Jordan Lake. When it was in the planning stages, it was referred to a little bit more generically as New Hope Dam and New Hope Reservoir. And the towns that all got submerged were all small farm communities. And so as I was doing research within the state archives, I was looking at the Discover online catalog as well as NC Digital Collections. And there is some photo documentation of life in this region during the mid 20th century. Nothing that was really specifically tied to the development of the future Jordan Lake, but you get a really good idea that in addition to farming, there were several industries that were quite robust at the time, including chicken processing, coal mining, gold mining, and lumber. And in fact, there was a railroad that ran through where Jordan Lake currently is. And that railroad no longer exists beyond a small museum in the New Hill area. And so we really had to connect the dots a little bit in visual documentation as well as a little bit of news coverage. Yeah, so tell me about that. So in addition to looking at the state archives, we had to do a little bit of outside research to really dig in and, and find out some of the process-oriented things that happened between the 1940s and the 1970s. And one of the key resources that made it easier for us to find things within the state archives was an academic article from the 1990s that talked about a U.S. Army Corps of Engineers study commissioned after the flood of 1945. And even among academic 
commentators, there was not easy consensus on what should be done in Chatham County. Creating a dam was considered a very traditional method of dealing with flooding. Uh, they chose a very non-traditional way of damming because the Ha River was fundamentally the source of the flooding, but instead of damming the Ha River itself, they dammed the New Hope Creek, which is a tributary of the Ha River. So there was opposition from lawmakers, there was opposition within the academic community, and then there was opposition within the community itself. There was commentary about water quality in the area, and given that Jordan Lake is a major source of drinking water for Durham and Chapel Hill, this is a topic that still holds relevance. And in fact, there is evidence in the archives and outside of the archives of discussion of phosphorus reduction in the water to make it potable. And so these are debates that started before the dam was created and really continued well after it was already, the lake was already formed and even up to the present day, given that drinking water continues to be a relevant issue. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I mean, it just, it just boggles me. I, we can't get over the point from earlier to to now that 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 there's stuff in this in both of these lakes and and while recreation you know water skiing on the top you know that's one thing if you're using these lakes for drinking water and it's it's a place where you know a house once stood and and all the building materials that went into that house is now in the drinking water i mean that's kind of that's kind of nuts to me i think it represents a very calculated move by leaders in North Carolina to shift both the economy as well as the migration patterns of people in central North Carolina. Because one of the documents that I found in the state archive talking about land development in Chatham County very explicitly acknowledges that the reduction in the amount of farms and communities in that area was going to automatically shift development to the major highways that surrounded that area. So if you are familiar with the triangle, it's US 64, US 15501, obviously probably I-40 was counted among that even though I think I-40 was still in its developing stages around the 60s and 70s. And so you can see evidence today of those decisions that were made back in the 60s before they really knew what the region was going to look like as it grew. So I'll, I'll ask you, Michelle, the same question I asked Madison. What happened to the, to the folks that were sort of displaced by the water in Jordan Lake? Well, that's not an easy answer to question based on the evidence that's in the archive. I think like the folks who lived where Fontana Lake now is, some were relocated, some quit farming. Some probably moved a few feet away. <laughs> it's really hard to tell. But one interesting piece of evidence that I found was a church anniversary publication. So this was a pamphlet or a newsletter produced in 1988 for the New Hill Baptist Church. And those of you who are familiar with Wake and Chatham and even a little bit of Harnett County will we'll know where New Hill is. It's kind of on the southeast corner 
of the area, the watershed that contains Jordan Lake. And I found a really interesting quote in there stating that this Carolina Power and Light Company, and that's CPNL, which is a predecessor for the current utility, and Jordan Lake have taken away what they call, quote, large chunks of productive farmland. And they go on to say, they have translocated people who rarely return to their former ties with the land. The influx of workers and visitors pressure the community for goods and services it cannot readily provide. The increased property tax base makes farming less profitable and hastens the conversion of land to other uses. And I think that that bears out some of that land planning that took place in 1970, stating pretty clearly that it was really a goal and aspiration to speed up development along the major highways. It's, it's just strikes me as maybe ironic or funny that, that the reason why New Hope Reservoir, later Jordan Lake and all that sort of thing, why that was even conceptualized was for flooding and farms. And now we're talking about it's here, so the flooding may have stopped. These towns are underwater, but we don't care about farming anymore. We want to develop in different ways that are more profitable to the to the tax base and, and, and to the economy of the county and the state. I think that's really fascinating. And I think it's worth noting, too, that at least one resource commented that a lot of the farmland that was considered productive at the time in Chatham County was tobacco farmland. Yeah, absolutely right. You know, we talked about how you found all this stuff through this research. I'm just kind of interested. I think our listeners would be interested, too, and, and maybe kind of peering back. You said it was hard to find stuff on this, and uh, on, the, on the contrary, Fontana Dam seemed a little bit easier to find stuff on. So maybe both of you can kind of take me through your, your process. Take me through how you found this stuff the strategies you use, the tools you use, and then that way maybe you know somebody else who's listening can add that to their repertoire and look through answer for, for things on this stuff, but also for, for just general purpose, for answering questions that they may have. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. I consider myself a bit of a research nerd, and so this is actually very enjoyable for me. But even when you enjoy research, you still encounter obstacles. And so the first thing I would say is do contextual research. Don't just rely on the state archives, even though it's a terrific resource. You want to look for things outside of the state archives that are relevant to the topic and, and make a note of the vocabulary that is used and start to apply that when you're searching the state archives, because as you go, you're going to discover things have different names over time. Even the highway names have changed in North Carolina over time. And those are things that Either you know because you're an old timer or because you found it somewhere. And so the, the curiosity that you apply to looking through state archives, just put on that cap when you're looking at all other resources, whether it's old media, old newspaper clippings, or somebody's personal papers. You never really know what you're going to find. And then I found a good deal of really interesting information looking at maps. And that's something that really almost can't be captured any other way. And we have a great number of digitized maps at the State Archive, but also in the reading room in downtown Raleigh. Beautiful, amazing, huge paper maps from throughout North Carolina's history. 
and they're going to tell you a lot. You're going to see topographical features, cities, roads, um, you know, leadership planning, maintenance planning, all of these things are represented visually and it can really help to connect the dots for whatever topic you're researching in the moment. That's great. And and going back to the maps, I mean, Madison talked about how Japan, North Carolina was on the map at, at one point and not. So we can see the change over time very clearly using these examples we've provided today. Are there other kind of tips and, and, and methods that you all want to share about this? Just like Michelle said, using that outside information, the first thing I did researching this was I just searched it on Google and I searched towns underwater in North Carolina, straight to the point, came up with Jetson and Proctor, only two on Wikipedia, everyone's, every researcher's favorite resource, am I right? And It's a great um, starting point, no doubt. No yeah, doubt. no doubt. And there's great references on there too, you know, so... Um, and that's another big thing I like to use is references. You know, the research is already done for you. You go in and you use their references. And sometimes the references tend to be from the state archives. So when I was doing the research, I started there and then I went deeper. And Japan, North Carolina was actually, it, it was a gold mine find. You know, it was, it was hard to find and it took me, it wasn't the first time I got on there and I found it it took me uh, my fourth day of researching I was like whoa and then I found the pictures and they happened to be digitalized oh it was it was a saving grace for this it was it was awesome yeah that that find of, of those photographs is terrific I mean we'll have those in the description and and uh, so that other people can see and I think the key here is to think about you know we have all sorts of things here that will help you with your research at the state archives but you might not be able to find it right away. You might have to look through a few pages of Google first, go through the Wikipedia, get to the links, and then bingo, you're at the State Archives getting the real deal. And, and that's where we can start processing some of this unprocessed history. Exactly. In fact, I think that the notion of these hidden and lost cities is such an interesting metaphor for the process of researching them as well, that you really do need to dive below the surface to learn really truly what was there. Not only were the towns submerged, but so was the information. I think that's great. You both got kind of unearthed some things. You let us know what was underneath the surface. You taught you, you, you taught us how to get underneath the surface and figuring out what happened to some of these towns and finding some really interesting and touching photographs. Thanks for coming on the show and helping us to process some of these unprocessed collections. I want to thank you both again. Thank you, John. Thank you. And thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. Connecting the Docs is a podcast created by staff members of the State Archives of North Carolina. Special thanks to the oral history interns, Madison Riley and Michelle Witt. To our producer, Brooke Chuka, and of course, to the person behind the voice you hear at the beginning and end of every episode, Judy Allen Dotson. I'm your host, John Horan. Thanks for joining us this week on Connecting the Docs, Unprocessed. Make sure to visit our website, connectingthedocs.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, 
we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our blog, History for All the People at ncarchives.wordpress.com. For more news and information, please visit our website, archives.ncdcr.gov.